0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Father, I pray that you would teach us this morning as we look into your word, help us to better understand the purpose, the goal of the book of Romans. And God, I pray that it would set the stage for what you want to teach us over the coming weeks. We ask these things in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. I promise you that we are going to um, accomplish what I'm hoping to accomplish, and that is to um, look at a different chapter every week. So as I told you, that's going to give us a basic overview of the teachings of each one of those chapters. I've encouraged you in your own personal reading time, your own personal study time, to consider working through the book of Romans, uh, knowing that we are not going to go into every aspect of it in depth, that there are going to be certain key passages that we're going to highlight as we're working on a certain chapter, but there's going to be certain things that we, we don't get to touch on. And Uh, It'd be very profitable for you to be studying along as we go to potentially hit some of the things that we may not get to go into. Lord willing, down the road, we'll come back to the book of Romans and we'll actually go through it uh, verse by verse. But that's not the purpose of what I want to do between now and the summertime. Instead, I want to allow our teaching in Jonah and Jude to dictate how we look at the book of Romans. And that's coming to grips with that faith that we've been told to contend for, that faith that we've been told to communicate to those around us. And so I believe that Romans contains that faith that Jude so strongly appealed to those Christians to contend for, to fight for in the face of opposition, in the face of false teaching. Some fast facts about Romans. First of all, it's the most systematic presentation of the gospel in the Bible. It's the most systematic presentation of the gospel in the Bible. Meaning, if you want to better understand the gospel, the book of Romans is where you should probably start. It's a thorough explanation. It walks you through from beginning to end as far as what the gospel is. So when we talk about communicating the gospel to somebody, this is the gospel in drawn-out form. But it's done so systematically, whereas in the other books of the New Testament... You're going to have bits and pieces and blurbs that Paul and the other authors are going to mention about the gospel. But it may not be a full start-to-finish presentation of the gospel like the book of Romans is. It's the longest book that Paul ever wrote, and it's typically the most quoted book that Paul ever wrote. Um, Studying Romans led to the salvation of Augustine, Martin Luther, and John Wesley. Some of the important individuals in, in church history were led to Christ because of their study of this book individually. It was written sometime around AD 57 or AD 58, near the end of Paul's life while he was staying in Corinth. So it was written in Corinth at the end of his third missionary journey. Um, it would not be long after this that he would go to Jerusalem. He would be arrested, uh, eventually put on trial in Rome. Uh, eventually he would be martyred for the faith. So this is towards the tail end of Paul's career. It's delivered to Rome by Phoebe, and we find that out in in chapter 16. And I think that's significant to mention because sometimes an attack on Christianity is its uh, demoralizing of women, that women aren't uh, treasured and treated with the same respect as maybe uh, the rest of society would say as far as are women equal as far as being able to uh, serve in the same roles as men? This is an example where a woman is highly valued in this story. A woman is entrusted to take this crucial book, and most would say that this book has had the most influence on the church and upon Christianity than any other individual book in the New Testament. And a woman was entrusted to transport this to Rome. I don't think we should miss that. I think we should understand that, that women at that time were, were revolutionized by Jesus and his followers. There was greater value and greater importance placed. This woman was a deaconess in the church, most likely, um, and we want to be faithful in this church to use the talents and the gifts and the abilities of the women that God brings to this church. I was meeting with, with women this morning about getting them involved in service opportunities that they've signed up with. We want women to thrive in this church. We want them to use the gifts and the abilities. We don't want to suppress that. And I think this is a perfect example where Paul picks out a woman to deliver this book to the Roman people. It was written differently than the other books that Paul writes. Uh, it doesn't address any specific controversies. There's no specific issues that are targeted. It's far less personal, as we're going to see, than Philippians, than First and Second Thessalonians. than than Titus, than Timothy, it doesn't have that personal feel like those other books have. The reason for that is that Paul doesn't have a personal connection with this church. He didn't start it, and he'd never been to it up to this point. So it's not like the Thessalonian church that he writes about, hey, I was there, I worked worked tirelessly with you, I labored with you, I established the gospel, I planted this church, I want to come back and see you. This is a setting where Paul says, Hey, I've heard about you guys, but I don't have any involvement with you. Like I've n- I've never been to your church. I've never uh I've never taught at your church. And so it has a less personal feel because part of this is simply an introduction to them about who Paul is. As I was studying, I I kinda wondered, you know how we talked about first and second Thessalonians is difficult for us to gain everything from it because we don't have what Paul taught them when he established the church. Remember we said that Paul labored for maybe six months and taught those people, discipled those people, instilled doctrine into those people. And then he writes First and Second Thessalonians. And so he assumes a foundation that's already been laid. And so I told you as we try to wrestle through 1 and 2 Thessalonians, sometimes we can't answer the questions that we want to Because Paul says, I've already taught you about the Antichrist. And so we're left going, man, where's that teaching? That would help us better understand the Antichrist. I often wondered, as I was studying yesterday, if the book of Romans is the type of information that Paul typically taught first when he was planting churches. And I think that because he hasn't ever been to Rome. He hasn't ever taught Rome. So maybe he's thinking, this is where I normally start with a new group of people. So I think Romans gives us some cool insight to what maybe Paul was teaching at these other churches that he planted that we don't have recorded. Maybe this is a compilation of other churches' initial discipleship material that he used. We do know that it's a systematic presentation of the gospel. And I typically wonder if if, if this was what he started off his church plants with. Why should we study Romans here at Sovereign Hope? I've got a couple of reasons that I wrote down. First of all, it's a timeless, classic statement of the Christian faith. It's a timeless, classic statement of the Christian faith. One commentator said, to know Romans is to know Christianity. Seems like a pretty good reason to study it. To know Romans is to know Christianity. And it really gives us good insight into understanding the relationship of law and and grace it protects us from being legalistic and imposing laws that do this and you're a christian it also teaches us about grace and how to properly understand grace that we can't be a christian and then just do whatever we want to so it gives good balance to understanding the role of the law and the role of grace in the life of a believer secondly it's the gospel lens we need to understand the world it's the gospel lens that we need To understand the world. It helps us to understand why things are the way that they are. It's what shapes our Christian worldview. You hear that term thrown around sometimes. What's your worldview? How do you see the world? How do you understand the world? Well, the book of Romans gives us a a big-time foundation, gives us big-time insight into why the world is the way that it is. He starts in the in the first few chapters, giving us a clear understanding about why our world is broken, why it is fallen, why we see sexual immorality around us, why we see the gross sins that we see, why mankind is the way that he is. So our worldview uh, flows out of the Book of Romans. Lastly, this is not a sports illustration. This is a computer illustration. So switching gears a little bit here, it's the operating system that allows us to understand and use the rest of the New Testament. It's the operating system that allows us to use and understand the rest of the New Testament. What do I mean by that? Well, I used to tell people, and I would still probably say this, that if I could only have one book in the New Testament, it would be the book of Romans. But in considering it and kind of looking at what Romans teaches, there are some things that are missing from the book of Romans that... that are crucial there's not a a ton of discussion about jesus coming back like we get in first and second thessalonians there's not a lot of evidence for the resurrection of jesus like we get in first corinthians there's not a lot of instruction it's not even mentioned the lord's supper so there's some there's some things that are missing from the book of romans but what the book of romans does for us it's the operating system without the book of romans we would struggle, I think, to understand some of the depths of the other New Testament books. And I think we don't even realize how important the book of Romans is to our understanding of other New Testament books. When we were going through First and Second Thessalonians, a lot of what we were, what we were learning and I was able to communicate to you flowed from a foundation of the gospel that we get in the book of Romans. He doesn't delve into the depths of justification and sanctification in First and Second Thessalonians. But we can draw from what we know in Romans and then apply it to our understanding in 1st and 2 Thessalonians. So when he says, God's will for your life is your sanctification, if we didn't have the book of Romans, we'd be going, Sanctification? Like I need some information about sanctification. Like, what is he talking about there? How does that work? How what does that look like? Well, we've got the book of Romans. It's like the operating system, it allows all the other apps to function. All the other books function the way that they're supposed to because of that operating system of Romans. It gives us the foundational understanding, the structure that we need to better understand the depths of the New Testament. Not to say that you couldn't understand the other New Testament books without it. We understand 1st and 2nd Thessalonians without Paul's initial teaching to that church, but we've admitted there's some stuff we can't know because of that. If we didn't have the book of Romans, there's a lot of stuff we wouldn't be able to know as deeply as we do know because we have the book of Romans. John Calvin says, when anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance open to him to all of the most hidden treasures of Scripture. When one gains a knowledge of Romans, he opens the door for the most hidden treasures of Scripture. Another commentator said, I've never seen a man... Tangled up in false theories of cult religions who knew accurately the book of Romans. That's why it's appropriate flowing out of what we learned in Jude. He says, I've never met a man who was confused about other religions who accurately knew the book of Romans. It protects us from false teachers. It protects us from false doctrines. It's the faith that we contend for. Who started the church at Rome if Paul did not? The Catholic Church tradition is that Peter started it. The Catholic Church would say that Peter was the first pope. The problem with that is that it's probably not Peter that started the church at Rome. There's no mention of Peter in chapter 16. When we get to chapter 16, we're going to see that it's like roll call for the membership at the church at Rome. There's at least 24 names that are listed at the, in chapter 16. Say hello to so-and-so, say hello to so-and-so, say hello to so-and-so. And Peter's not mentioned there. We would expect that if Peter was there, if he was the starter of the church, if he was the pope of the church, that Paul would have said, give my regards to Peter. There's no mention of Peter there. In addition, there is... uh, Paul communicates to us that there's no desire for him to build off of somebody like Peter. In Romans 15, verse 20... Paul says, I make it my ambition to preach the the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Paul says, I like to go places where, where I'm not building off of somebody else. Where I'm not building off, especially somebody else that's an apostle. So we would expect that if Peter had been the one to implement this church plant, Paul would have been less inclined to get here like he wants to get there. Also, uh, there's no mention of Peter in the book of Acts starting this church. We have a lot of churches being started in Acts. We have a lot of people that we can identify with the planters of those churches. No mention of Peter starting starting the, the church in Rome in the book of Acts. Rome was the primary city in the Roman Empire. We would expect that if the church was started by Peter, at some point Luke would have felt compelled to mention that. So if Peter didn't start it, who started it? It's very likely that it's a combination of two groups of people. One, the Pentecostal Jews in Acts chapter 2. The Jewish people that were saved at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples. In Acts chapter 2 verse 10, we're listing off cities that, that the Jewish people had come from to celebrate the Passover. It says at the very end of verse 10, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and Proselytes, so it's very likely that people got saved here in Jerusalem at Pentecost, and then went back home and got together, maybe started as a small group, and it progressed to the church that Rome or that Paul now writes to at Rome, so probably a mixture of those people and then some of Paul's own personal disciples. We said that he's never been to this church, but he greets about twenty four people that are there. So it's very likely that people that had gotten saved had relocated to Rome and had helped plant this church. One group of people that we know is there is Aquila and Priscilla. This is a married couple that's mentioned to us in Acts chapter 18. We know they're a solid couple that's faithful to communicate the gospel. It says that they are transported into Paul's presence um, because of an uprising in Rome. So basically Rome kicks the Jews out. Now, that may be that they kicked him out because these people from Acts came back to Rome talking about Jesus and stirred up the Jewish people, and there was controversy. And the Roman government said, we're not dealing with this. All of you, get out of town. So they get, they get uh, relocated. It says in Acts 18.2, uh, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, the emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, this couple ends up preaching and teaching and doing ministry with Paul. In verse 24, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So here's a couple that seems very intentional about passing on the true gospel, the, the true faith to individuals. They're part of the roll call in, in uh, Romans 16. So it's very possible that Paul had converts or even disciples that moved to Rome that joined up with his church and helped plant this church. Why did Paul write the book of Romans? Number one, he felt the need to pass along apostolic teaching. He felt the need to pass along apostolic teaching. We don't have any indication that an apostle had ever been to the church at Rome and had ever preached at the church at Rome, had ever discipled at the church at Rome. So Paul wants to fill up what is lacking there in apostolic teaching. He wants to make sure that the faith they have, they can connect with the apostles. Because remember, Jude draws attention to the fact that the apostles are the one that gave us this faith. They received it from Christ. They've given it to us. So I think Paul is very intentional about giving them either written form or he desires to be there in presence so that they can connect what they believe with the apostles. He wants to minister to the Romans in person, but he's been held up. So because he can't get there physically, he decides to write this letter. Eventually, he does make it to Rome, but it's in the Roman prison. It's where he writes the book of Philippians. Number three, he writes to gain Rome as a base of operation. He's writing to the Romans because he wants a base of operation because he communicates to them in Romans 15, 24 that he wants to get to Spain, that his intent is to go as far west as he can. So he says, I'm trying to get to Spain with the gospel, and I believe he's wanting to set up Rome as his base of operations. He used Antioch a lot as his base of operations. I think he's wanting to establish Rome. He knows that in traveling from Jerusalem, because he says, I'm about to go to Jerusalem. And we'll see that. I'm about to go to Jerusalem, and then I'm going to Spain. And I think Rome would have been the perfect place. It was about two-thirds of the way for him to stop, to rest, to be refreshed. He talks about, I want to I be encouraged by you. I want to encourage you. And he also is going to petition them for financial support. To help with his ministry. And in writing the book of Romans, he wants to show the validity of who he is so he communicates to them the gospel the same gospel that they believe is the same gospel that he's teaching because he knows there's people that are slandering his name and then lastly he isn't sure if he'll ever make it to Rome he isn't sure if he'll ever make it to Spain he wants to make sure the gospel goes forth he doesn't know if he's going to make it he he communicates to them in Romans 15:30 that he's not sure he's going to make it out of Jerusalem. He knows that people are against him. He knows that people are angry at him. And so Romans is a safety net in case he doesn't get there physically to make sure that the gospel has gone west. And I think that desire comes from what he says in Romans 1, 5 through 6 that we read. Through Jesus we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith For the sake of his name among all the nations. Paul was concerned about Christ's name being made great among all the nations. He says, If I can't get to Spain, I've got to send this letter to the Romans, this gospel, in hopes that it will eventually make it to Spain if I don't. Who did Paul write to? I don't know why there's as much debate about this in the commentaries that I looked at, wanting to fight about. Is it more Jewish or more Gentile? I think everybody agrees that there's both. So I'm content with just saying, I don't know how many Jews and how many Gentiles there were, but there were Jews and there were Gentiles. We know there were Jews there because he associates some of the readers with the Mosaic Law. He talks about Abraham being their forefather. He deals with the Jewish sin and apostasy in chapters 9 through 11. He deals with Israel's place in history. All of that's relevant for Jewish people. But then he's obviously talking to Gentiles as well. He's called to minister to Gentiles. He makes that clear in what we read earlier in chapter 1. And he also speaks to the Gentiles specifically in Romans eleven thirteen. Now I'm speaking to you, Gentiles. I mean that makes it obviously clear that there's Gentiles present that would be reading this letter in this church. I think as we work through this book, we're going to see that he wants to unite Jews and Gentiles. He wants to break down the barriers. He wants them to see how unified they are. They're saved the same way, and they have the same hope in the future. What we, what we learn from the book of Romans. What we learn. First of all, in your blank there, we find out that we have a serious problem. Paul writes the book of Romans... Again, as a, like a dissertation on the gospel, and he begins by identifying to us the serious problem that mankind has—that we have failed to honor God properly. That as His creation, we have failed to give due honor to our Creator. We find out by studying Romans. We learn from Romans that we have a serious problem. Romans answers a question for us: How can a person be right? with God. The the question that Romans answers for us is how can a man be right with God? How can a man stand before the holy presence of God and be justified? We talked about this in Jude, that Jesus, the work that he does in our life because of what he's done on the cross and what he did through his perfect life, it allows us to stand in the presence of God one day, to not be completely um, obliterated in the presence of God because of our sin. Instead, instead, we can stand confidently, blamelessly in his presence. Romans tells us how that is possible. And the question had been posed and asked in the Old Testament. So there was this lingering, open-ended question that needed to be answered. In Job chapter 9, verse 2, Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man... Be in the right before God. Habakkuk 2.4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So the answer is there in the, New, in the Old Testament. But a clear understanding is needed about how an individual can stand in the presence of God. Now, Jesus gives the standard of holiness in Luke chapter 10. He communicates the answer, but the answer that none of us can give. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. This is in Luke 10 25, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Jesus is telling him the right way to get to heaven. He says, You've got to do that perfectly. You have got to obey the law, which means love God with everything that you've got, and love others around you, and you'll live. He says, you've answered correctly, do those things and you'll live. The only problem is that nobody can do those things. The standard that that is presented to us in Scripture is that you have to be perfect to get to heaven. It's not just that, that our good works don't measure up. It's the fact that our good works don't even come close because we have to be perfect to the law. Jesus is perfect for us. That's why when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we celebrate his perfect life and his death on the cross. Both are equally important for our salvation. Jesus says, if you can do these things, yes, you'll live. The only problem is he exposes to this man that he didn't do those things as well as he thought he did. Some of the other questions that are answered in the book of Romans is why is God angry? Why is God right to be angry? How far-reaching is our sin? Has salvation changed over time? He's going to show us in chapter 4 that Abraham is the, saved the same way that Andrew is saved. He's saved the same way as Thomas is saved. Things didn't work differently for Abraham than they do for Topi. Salvation has always been the same. It hasn't changed over time. Is our salvation secure? What are God's plans for Israel? Are Jews and Gentiles different? How do we relate to the law? What are we free to do as Christians? We're going to see that there are some gray areas in the Christian life. Are we allowed to do this? Should we not do this? And, and Paul addresses those issues for us. So these are questions that are answered and we'll strive to answer as we study this book together. All right, the major theme of the book, the major theme of Romans is God's righteousness revealed in Christ that is acquired by faith. God's righteousness revealed in Christ. That is acquired by faith. The theme verse. And the first verse that we're going to strive to memorize as a church family is Romans 1, 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Those are the, those are the, the verses that allow everything else that he writes to, to flow from it. Romans one sixteen through 17. It's all about God's righteousness being revealed in Christ. And he communicates to us that we acquire that righteousness through faith. All right, I've given you two terms there that we need to make sure that we have consistent definitions about. Because we're going to come back to these terms constantly As we study the book of Romans. The first is the gospel. The gospel. The gospel is God's plan to save man from his sin through Christ by faith for his glory forever. It's God's plan to save man from his sin through Christ by faith for his glory forever. If you, want to, you want to remember that definition in a simpler way, then you can write down God, man, sin, Christ, response. God, man, sin, Christ, response. This is the gospel that has to be communicated when we're talking about sharing it with people at work. Now, we can share aspects of the gospel and still be faithful, but to accurately and faithfully share the gospel, we've got to go from God to response. Sharing God and man and sin is part of the gospel. But if we don't ever get around to the response, then we've fallen short of the plan to save. So it's God's plan to save man from his sin through Christ by faith for his glory forever. And the term justification, which you'll hear more from from Tyson and Adam. Justification is to be declared righteous, to be declared righteous and I've told you before that the the catchy definition, just as if I never sinned, falls short of accurately describing what justification is. Justification is not just a forgiveness of sins where we're brought back to a neutral state. So it's not just as if I've never sinned. It's just as if I was perfect. So it's taking us not just to forgiveness of sins, but it's applying all the perfectness that we need to be in God's presence. That, that that catchy definition would simply be if somebody walked into my classroom and failed a test, bombed it, got a zero, I could wipe it off and say we're going to retake the test. It's just as if you never took the test. The only problem is that you still have to take the test to pass. Justification is me taking the test off and saying we're going to wipe the zero away and I'm going to give you 100 because so-and-so got 100 on the test. That doesn't happen in the classroom setting. It does happen sometimes because I've used it as an illustration before, and I've given a final exam that nobody could pass, and I tell them you can take it, and if you miss one, you fail. Or I took the test, and I passed it, and so you can count my grade for you. That's about the only time that that happens in a classroom. Justification is not just me saying, hey, we'll we'll let you retake the test. Because you still have to take the test. Justification is, I'm forgiving you of failing, and I'm acting as though you passed, and you passed perfectly. So it's important that we understand that definition of justification. All right, here's the outline of the book and how we're going to kind of break it down over the coming weeks, and this will help shape when we're going to do our C-group breakfasts. All right, so number one is condemnation. Um, Paul starts with the bad news condemnation the wrath of god revealed this happens in chapters 1 2 and 3 condemnation it's the wrath of god being revealed it answers the question is the world lost some people in our society obviously not anybody here but some people in our society would say that there's nothing wrong with man that man is just fine that man is well others other denominations other religions would say that man is sick There is a sin problem, but it's something that we can get over. It's something that we can fix on our own. If If we make some improvements, if we make some changes to our life, then we can get out of this sick condition. That's the Mormon teaching. That's the Jehovah's Witness teaching. We can improve where we are right now. We can be better and thus earn God's favor. The Christian teaching is not that man is well, not that man is sick, but that man is dead, that man is dead in his sins and has to be resurrected to life. We need a spiritual resurrection, a spiritual regeneration where the Holy Spirit awakens us to who Jesus is. In chapters 1 through 3, we're going to see that all are guilty and that no works can fix that problem. Secondly is salvation. Salvation, the righteousness of God is revealed. This is in chapters 3 through 8. So we start off with the wrath of God being revealed. Then we have the righteousness of God being revealed. It answers the question, how does God save sinners? We're going to see that it talks about justification, that initial, your saved experience. Sanctification, how God changes us over time into the image of Christ. That's where we get into discussion about the law and grace and what are our responsibilities practically today. But we're also going to see the aspect of preservation to our glorification. Chapter 8, it explains to us why we don't have to worry about our salvation told you last week the cost of following Christ is too great if I can lose it at the end. If I can come up short, I've risked it all and then I, I then I fall short. Jesus says you can risk your life, you can get rid of your life now to gain your life. Jesus never communicates risk your life and you're still risking your future. If that were the case then there would be no reason to risk my life now. We're going to see in Romans chapter 8 why we don't have to worry about a lost salvation. Thirdly is vindication. Vindication. The wisdom of God is revealed. This answers the question, why is Israel rejected? This is where we're going to have to wrestle with an understanding of what God means by election and human responsibility. And I'm grateful that Tyson and Adam have agreed to teach chapters 9, 10, and 11. No, they didn't. Ben did. Now, it's going to it's gonna be a difficult three chapters, and um, we're going to wrestle through it. We're going to try to come to an understanding of, of what's going on in those passages. What's evident is that we have to do something with it. We can't study the book of Romans and sidestep chapters 9, 10, and 11. Um, so we're going to have to figure out what's meant by some of those, at times, difficult and confusing terms. Um, so that will come... Like nine weeks from now, so. Number four is exhortation, the will of God revealed. This is where we get real practical. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. All of that comes on the heels of a big theological discussion about our salvation. So chapters 1 through 11 is heavy doctrine, heavy theology, And in chapter 12, Paul's saying, in light of your salvation, in light of what you now know about the gospel, live in a worshipful manner. Live in such a way that you're offering yourselves as a living sacrifice. It answers the question, how shall a saved man walk? Theology leads to being holy. It's how to live worshipfully. It's in those or five chapters that we uh, see how our relationships are changed by the gospel our relationship to god our relationship to ourselves our relationships to each other our relationships to our enemies our relationships to the state and government and how we're to interact with them our relationship to god's law our relationship to the weak brother those are all relationships that that we're going to talk about and how they're affected by our understanding of the gospel in chapters 1 through 11 all right in that outline of four big things, there's two major sections, the justification of sinners in the eyes of God, and this isn't in your notes. The justification of sinners in the eyes of God and the justification of God in the eyes of sinners. So the justification of sinners in the eyes of God and then the justification of God in the eyes of sinners. Now that section about God being justified in our eyes He's not obligated to do that, but he does explain to us why he is justified for doing things the way that he does. That's chapters 9, 10, and 11. Everything else is the justification of us in the eyes of God. So under that first major section, the justification of sinners in the eyes of God, it answers, can we be saved by works? And if not, if salvation is by grace, what role do works play? In that section, we're going to see that all need to be justified because all sin... None will be justified by what they do. We can only be justified by Christ's work. We're justified by faith in Christ. All kinds of sinners can be justified. And while we've said that justification is by faith alone, justification is by faith alone, but justifying faith is never alone. So, Paul addresses the question, if I'm saved, can I just go on sinning so that grace will continue to abound? And he explains that, no, justifying faith produces works. You must receive righteousness first in order to live righteously. That's the key element of Romans. We don't try to live a righteous life so that God will count us righteous. God gives us his righteousness so that we can now live righteously. So good works, and I've taught my sixth graders this before, good works don't come before salvation. Good works always come after salvation. So We don't work our way to heaven, but once our heaven destination is secure, we begin to work righteously here because of that salvation. The justification of God in the eyes of sinners, we're going to see how God has remained faithful while Israel has been unfaithful. We're going to see that God has always worked by calling sinners to faith, That same process of salvation has always been there. God has not changed whom he intends to save. So Israel did not mess up God's plan with their rejection. It's all part of God's plan. It's all part of what he knew was going to happen and what um, he structured things in the past to play out this way. He's always acted for his name's sake. I think that's a a key component there that, that Paul throws out there at the very beginning. While this book is all about how we can be saved, and that's an important part of that definition of gospel, it's not just God's plan to save man from his sin through Christ by faith. That last part is the key element. It's for his glory forever. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 1, 5, and 6. We've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. This plan of salvation is all about making God look good not about just rescuing us from hell it's about making god and his glory and his name be known among the nations so to kind of summarize everything we talked about today to kind of summarize the book of romans romans is a letter of exhortation and instruction it's a letter of exhortation and instruction setting forth paul's understanding of the gospel it's a letter of exhortation and instruction setting forth Paul's understanding of the gospel that Jew and Gentile together form one people of God. Paul setting forth his understanding of the gospel that Jews and Gentiles form one people of God based on God's righteousness received through faith in Christ as a gift of the Holy Spirit. We're going to cover a lot, of, a lot of doctrine, a lot of teaching here, and I want to challenge you to, again, be faithful to look at this and study this on your own. Um, we're going to, like I said, I want to set up some opportunities for us to uh, pose questions and dialogue about some of this on the city, knowing that we're not going to get into all aspects of each chapter. Um, what I love about this is that this is Paul's dissertation on the gospel. This is what Paul believes. And I was, I was sharing with some of the guys yesterday, um, I'm challenged in that I, I want to, before my life is over, I want to put together something like this for my, for my children. I want to be able to, to say, this is what I believe. Not just point them to the book of Romans, because we know that Romans needs some, some, some dialogue and some discussion so we can understand the depths of it. And, and I love some of the systematic theology books that are out there. But if I were to hand A.J. Grudem's Systematic Theology, which a lot of you guys own, I would hand it to A.J. and say, "A.J., I believe a lot of what's in this book, but there's some things that I disagree with him about." There's other theology books that are in my library that I could say, "A.J. Abram, read these books. These are these are things that I believe, but there's some things in there that I don't believe." And so, in in, in studying this and and learning this together, I've I've set a kind of a plan for myself that. For the next 16 years, that's a long time. But what I would, and I would challenge other men in our, in our church to consider doing this. When A.J. turns 18, I would love to hand him my systematic theology book and say, this is what I believe about the gospel, about Jesus coming back. I don't want you to have to reference other men. You can do that and, and, and make sure that daddy's right. But this is what dad believes about these issues. And if you want to reference the faith that I'm calling you as my son to contend for, this is it in written form. I've taught you this for the last 18 years. And this is what it is in written form, and I want you to contend for it. So I would challenge you to use this doctrinal discussion that we're going to be going through over these few months to spur you on, especially the men in our church, to know what we believe, this faith that we're called to contend for, and not just know it, It's out there. It's somewhere in there. But to put it together, to put it together systematically the way that Paul did. And say, this is the faith that my family holds to. This is the faith that we're contending for. This is what we believe about Christ. We challenge you to use that in your own study time, to to use this as an opportunity to put together what you believe about some of these important doctrines as we work through this together. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for where you're going to take us over the coming weeks here in the book of Romans. I know that it's a huge undertaking to try to accomplish this in 16 to 18 weeks. But Father, I'm hoping that I can give and that through your power I can give a a clear overview of the faith that you've called us to contend for. Father, I'm praying that you would give us insight in new ways that we've uh, not understood before about some of these doctrines that we're going to tackle God, I pray that we would come out of this study uh, holding on to the gospel even tighter than we currently are. That we would come out of it more passionately desiring to share it with others. Father, that we would have the same heartbeat as Paul to see this gospel go to the nations for your name's sake. God, I pray that as we seek to commit Romans 1, 16 and 17 to our hearts, that we would not be ashamed of this gospel. Because it is the power of salvation. The power of salvation for everyone who believes. And so, Father, I pray that once again you would squash any doubts that we have about your salvation plan. Father, that you would uh, enable us to share the gospel, not doubting whether or not people will be saved by it. Father, I pray that our passion to see your name made great would drive us to communicate this power of salvation to others. God, teach us more about you through this study. pray that even our men in this study would come out more resolved to pass this faith on in their family. God, I pray ultimately that you'd be honored and glorified by everything that you teach us. Amen.